This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Justin Spencer, CFO of Vocera Communications, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 490. basis, we are putting a forecast in front of not just our board, but our investors. So every Saturday, our CEO sends out an update on our forecast. So it's the ability to tell a story in real time, you know, that drives credibility with, with investors, with board members, that is absolutely critical. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Craig Nickerson, CFO of Insight Software. Have you heard of Insight Software before? If you haven't, you may well soon. The story behind Insight is really about four businesses coming together. Soon to be more, no doubt. And so from a finance function point of view, that means four different accounting platforms coming together spread across dozens of countries Uh, I guess you get the idea. There are mergers, there's deal-making, and then there's the finance function that needs to be designed, architected, executed. CFO Craig Nickerson shares his 2019 priorities with us and takes a look back for us and explains how he got from A to I, as in insight. (laughs) We begin after these words from our sponsor. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking to Craig Nickerson, CFO of Insight Software, which is today designing solutions to help organizations access data insights in real time. Craig, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Craig, as always, we like to ask our guests to begin by looking back for us and telling us a little bit about themselves and what those experiences were that they feel helped prepare them for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, I think there's there's kind of three specific opportunities in my history that, that have prepared me to become kind of the financial leader that I am today or, you know, that have 
allowed me to be, you know, able to serve in the role that I'm serving in today. Um, you know, if I look back, I started off in public accounting as, as, as most CFOs uh, do. And one of the opportunities that I stepped into post my, my public accounting experience was for a publicly traded company called Sawtech. It was a company that, that specialized in um, semiconductors, manufacturing wafers for cell phones, PDAs. And, um, you know, what stood out for me most there when I look back in history is that, you know, I had a very, very strong mentor, an individual that was a CFO that brought me into every meeting that taught me the importance of, of accuracy and timeliness of financial reporting. You know, as we were a publicly traded company, um, you know, one mistake in our financial reporting, one mistake, you know, in your forecasting, you know, could result in material hit to your, to your uh, value in the marketplace. So, you know, the importance of getting things right, the importance of getting things timely was kind of um, instilled to me at that, at that opportunity. Additionally, you know, at SawTech, we were a, uh, an ESOP company. And that meant about, you know, the employees owned about 10% of the company. So 10% of my, you know, my peers, um, you know, my fellow employees owned about 10% of the company. And all of their investments were tied up in their retirement funds. So, you know, the ability to manage the company successfully was not just only for external investors. It was, it was for our internal employees. So what I took away from that company is just the importance of, of getting things right, not being able to, you know, tell a historical story, but being able to tell a story about the future and getting the numbers right in the future and how important it was. Um, I think next up, if I think about, you know, my career was, was the first opportunity to being, served, being able to serve as a CFO, which was at a company called uh, Dynatech. And, you know, Dynatech was a, a super, super interesting company. The company we grew while I was there, we grew up from $50 million to $340 million. It was run by, you know, a, a pure entrepreneur, someone that founded the business, you know, and funded the business with his own credit cards. And so what I learned there is a, an absolute, um, um, you know, um, I think respect for the entrepreneurial process, the ability to grow a company, the fact that, you know, you can bring your skill set in and bring formal processes and controls to a company that, um, didn't have anything, you know, they were on QuickBooks and taking them from QuickBooks all the way through Oracle, um, being able to help the, the CEO make, you know, more process controlled decisions and growing the business from, you know, from 50 million, which is already a sizable company, all the way up to 340 and then doing it both organically um, and through M&A was, was, you know, I would say something in, in my history that I look very fondly back on. Um, I think the third one is, is my most recent opportunity. It was a, uh, um, um, a SaaS-based software company in Chicago operating in the sales enablement software space. Um, you know, it was, I think, my second pure PE play, but it was a PE play where it was backed by, you know, three really strong investors who, who brought three different opinions to the table. You know, the investors were Goldman Sachs, Sterling Partners, and Sapphire Ventures. And you know, the ability to navigate through three different investor opinions around the table, um, the ability to navigate a company that is um, really focused on high growth um, and being able to balance the cash burn vis-a-vis you know, vis -vis the, um, uh, the growth aspiration. So when I take a look back through my career, it was one that was founded in, in a publicly traded environment where you learn the importance of re reporting accurately and timely and the repercussions of, of not doing so, you know, um, I think coming across an opportunity that was at for almost eight years and working side by side with a, with a 
you know, a true founder entrepreneur, which is extremely, extremely, I think, um, energizing. Um, you know, someone that's willing to put their own capital and their own family dollars at risk is something that is that something I'll never forget and I'll always cherish. And then the third is is you know working in a true private equity backed company and understanding you know how private equity works. Um, you know, learning how to work with three different investors, learning how to grow to, uh, a business, and learning how to you know grow a business in, a, in a, an environment where you're burning a lot of capital and you have to consistently be on the lookout. You know not just three months out, but six, nine, 12 months out when you're going to hit your next liquidity challenge and be able to go to market and raise capital and tell a story to be able to do so successfully. So those would be some of the, you know, I think the primary career milestones um, um, today. So if I was to characterize uh, your path to the CFO office, I, I would say it's a, it's a fairly traditional one um, involving public accounting, and then moving into um, the corporate world, uh, given the, the breadth of clients you were probably serving at that time, and uh, you did so in Central Florida, you uh, joined the high-tech world down there, really. I, I, I imagine you got very quickly focused uh, with some of the, uh, the corporate clients, and they just happened to be uh, high-tech clients that led you into that world. And then the other piece of this as, you're, as you got into these companies that grew so quickly, you became familiar with a lot of the private equity partners out there, which I have a, a suspicion allowed you to grow as well and brought new opportunities to you. Um, am I missing a piece of this? Or, um? No, 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 you're, you're not. So when I, when I, when I left college, um, 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 I was fortunate enough to land with a, with a large regional firm in, in accounting and uh, in public accounting. And... Um, I was able to align myself with a partner who had developed a niche for um, working on small tech IPOs. And so while I was just out of school during my first five years post-school, I worked on, you know, five separate tech IPOs, um, you know, in, in positions ranging from a staff accountant, don't get me wrong, pounding on a 10 key, all the way through five years later on where I was a supervisor. And what led me to my first opportunity um, post-public accounting was a company called LaserSight, which was a client of our public uh, of our public firm or, or of my my public accounting firm, and uh, they brought me in as a corporate controller, and um, that was back you know during I would say the the wild west days of, of going public, and Sarbanes Oxley had not been introduced yet. Um, it was a really really neat opportunity. It was a company that was uh, um, a company focused on manufacturing ophthalmic lasers. So if you heard of the word LASIK. Um, the company manufactured lasers that performed the uh, laser procedure, and because we were going through the FDA approval process, we funded the company through international operations and international sales. So I had the opportunity to live in Beijing for six months and set up a manufacturing plant there. I had the opportunity to um, go back and forth between Central Florida and San Jose, Costa Rica, and set up a manufacturing plant there to service our, our um, Latin and South American customers. So, yeah, absolutely. Is that is that back in the early 2000s or late that 90s? That was back was in that? the late 90s, early 2000s. Wow! Actually, late actually uh, late 90s. Yeah, that's an exciting, uh, certainly an exciting chapter for you. I have to believe. No, got got very lucky. <laughs> is there? Um, uh, and then you know, just to be clear, you've had several CFO tours of duty by today. Um, 
two of them, as you mentioned, Dynatech, you grew this company. You were there 2002 to 2010, so you really made an investment there and saw this company grow during your tenure. Um, similarly, uh, your other uh, another CFO tour of duty was six years, so you're making an investment of time with these companies. And inside this, uh, let's call it, ecosystem of private equity, uh, board of directors, you're now a brand. You're sort of a you've established that that growth CFO brand. Am I <laughs> would I be overstating that? How do you look at the world? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that when people are looking at my my background, they see someone that's been able to successfully scale companies. Um, uh, an individual that's actually been able to, you know, go through not just good times but bad times. I think, you know, um, being candid, I think anyone can be a, a, a good CFO when when numbers are up and to the right. But when you're the CFO at a company for eight years, you're the CFO at a company for five years, um, there's a certain level of, of being able to um, look out across the horizon, pick your spots and your timing of when you want to make investments and, and when you don't want to, and having the fortitude to stick out decisions and be able to stick out and having the fortitude to stick with your investment thesis through good times and bad times. And so, you know, I think one of the things I'm more proud of is if you reached out to, you know, my CEOs at my last opportunities, they would all speak very, very fondly of me. And that's important to me. So, yeah, when I, when I do go to companies, I generally don't think of myself as a mercenary um, accountant. I think of myself as someone that's, that's going to make a, a long investment um, in a business, and I'm going to stay with it through fruition come, you know, come hell or high water. So, you know, fast forward uh, to 2018, and this is when you join Insight Software. After all these years of experience as a CFO, um, you know, the intrigue's there. What is the opportunity uh, that you said, yes, okay, this is the company I can open my next chapter with? What, it, what is it that, that draws you there? Yeah, I mean, um, number one, when I'm when I'm um, when I look back at my career, I, I I enjoy working in the world of private equity. You know, I enjoy the accountability. I enjoy the um, the fact that you're measured, you know, on a quarterly basis. Um, the fact that Insight Software was backed by a, a very very well-known um, um, private equity sponsor, financial sponsor, and TA associates. It's a group of individuals that you know, are known to be extremely successful. They buy into a space or they, they invest into a space, and they're very aggressive about growing it, not just organically, but through M&A. And so when I first joined the business, um, they had just put two businesses together. And since I've been here, we've acquired three more. And, you know, I would be disappointed that in the next probably six to nine months that we didn't acquire three or four more businesses. So. The ability to work with a quality financial sponsor that tangibly takes action in growing a business, you know, you know, being in the software business, number one, that's that's where I bring value at. That's where I've been at the last 15 years, um, working with a strong leadership team. So when I first came, I was interviewed with the opportunity. The fact that, you know, I I thought extremely highly of the of the CEO who took the opportunity here. Um, yeah, I, I think it check the number of boxes that you would look for in an opportunity. Uh, it's in a space that's got winded at sales. Um, it's got a very, very, if you're getting very tactical, it's got a customer base that's very loyal. 
some very, very strong retention rates. Um, you know, their gross, uh, their gross retention rates are 95%. Net retention rates are greater than 100%, which means that the customers aren't just staying with them. The customers are growing. And so it checked off a, a lot of boxes because you can do a lot of cool, neat things with a software business when you have a strong, loyal customer group and you have, um, you know, investors that are willing to invest in the business. And, you know, it, you know additionally, I came from, a, from an environment where you were much more focused on growth. Here the business is, is well, we're focused on growth, we're focused on control growth, and we're much more focused on bottom line profitability. And when you're profitable, you, there's a lot of advantages to being profitable. Um, your customers, when you're aligning with customers, um, they can look at you more strategically. You're going to be around for the long term. Um, you can continue to invest aggressively in innovation, which when you're selling software to um, um, enterprise customers, they want to know that you're going to be around for a long time and that you're going to be able to continue to invest in R&D. And you know, I think if you take a look at our space and our competitors, um, you would take a look at a company that's R&D budget for 2019 is probably larger than the majority of our competitors' top line revenues. So we're in a very, very good, we're in a very, very strong position. Um, and those were a number of the reasons that I was interested in coming to this. To this Had your past experiences as a CFO, did they involve both? Uh, I, 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 clearly, they did involve both M&A as well as organic growth. Is this company more M&A-minded than your past uh, tours of duty? Absolutely. I think um, last companies that I work for, you know, um, when there's M&A opportunities that come along, I think the M&A opportunities that came along were just m much more, I'd say, um, um, less strategic and more opportunistic. Here, the business and the investors um, want to grow, and part of the strategy is to grow through M&A. And so when you walk in the door and you're walking into a company that, for all intents and purposes, is, is a whiteboard, that the management team is brand new, um, your accounting team is going to be brand new. Your systems and processes are going to be brand new. It's pretty cool. It's a pretty enticing and energizing place to be when you have a blank slate to walk into and you can make it what you want to be. Having, having uh, assessed companies over time and said, yes, I'll join this company, I have to believe there are a couple that perhaps you said not for me along the way. I'm not asking you to talk about those, but I'm wondering what the criteria, what or how you do your sort of due diligence. And that might be you might talk to the, uh, the auditors of the company. You talk to the private equity partner. You talk to the CEO, of course. There has to be a special connection there of some kind that you feel comfortable with. But is there something that you do as you assess whether this is where you can open your next chapter uh, that you'd recommend to other CFOs who are evaluating other opportunities? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There has to be a connection between the CEO and the CFO. So when you're interviewing, there has to be some level of chemistry between um, um, the CEO and the CFO. There has to be a level of trust um, and credibility um, out of the gate. And, you know, incrementally, you know, when I'm looking at an opportunity, um, uh, you do get to meet with the, with the investors, the financial sponsors. You do interview with them, and they're doing as much due diligence on you probably more than you're doing on them. And so when I'm looking at an opportunity, I'm looking at the space it's operating in. Do I believe it has 
you know, the opportunity to continue to grow and, and drive value. Um, you look at certain data points, you know, are they growing predictably consistently? Um, I mentioned it before, I think, you know, one of the most important metrics in any software business is its customer retention rates. Um, you can't grow a business if you're not retaining, retaining your customers. And so the fact that this business was operating at 95% retention rates, higher than that when you, when you throw in expansion um, bookings on top of, of existing customers, you know, it checked a lot of boxes. So when you're looking at businesses, you absolutely want to look at the numbers. You actually want to, you want to look at the track record of the investors. TA has a phenomenal track record and the specific financial individual who's leading this investment for TA has a phenomenal track record. So it, you know, checking the box in regards to the people who are going to be driving the strategy, and a big part of the strategy is M&A here, and have they done it successfully? Have they put their money where their mouth is historically? Yeah, absolutely. Those are some of the data points you look in. You know, bare point things is you, you try to get down as far as you can in regards to meeting the team, who your VP of finance is going to be if they have one, who the controller is going to be because that's such a critical and important position. Um, you know, meeting with HR. HR is an extremely important person to meet with because you can get a real good um, feel for the culture of the business. Um, you know, are they retaining um, employees? Because, you know, employee retention rate is almost as important, I shouldn't say almost, it is as important as, in, as customer retention rates. You don't want, you can't grow a business if you don't have some continuity in your employee base. So, yeah, those, those are a number of the metrics that, that you look at when you're doing due diligence as it relates to what your next opportunity is. And uh, just in regards to those opportunities, you have uh, entered, come through the door to new opportunities several times as a CFO. But I'm wondering if, you know, compared to when you first entered uh, the CFO suite at that company way back when, whether your team and how you structure it has changed, and are you now looking to add different types of skill sets or experiences that may not have been part of your finance team in the past? Yeah, I mean, I, I think fundamentally you do have to grow and change um, um, as technology continues to advance. So when you're looking to grow and build a team, um, um, you're looking for people that might have you know, more skill sets with with specific applications. So we're gonna we're building our company here off of NetSuite, or not building our company off of, we're building the accounting platform off of NetSuite. So you're looking for people that have specific Net, NetSuite experience. You're looking for people that have, you know, the world of software because the rules and regulations seem to change overnight. You're looking for people that have strong technical abilities in, in managing through revenue recognition. Um, but I think, you know, fundamentally some things don't change. I mean, you, you do want to try to create and find people that want to continue to learn and be challenged. Um, you know, I, you want a, an environment, you want to create an environment where people are, aren't afraid to fail, where they're afraid, where they whether want to take challenges and step into roles that they believe might be above them. You know, I'm a big believer in um, um, giving people an opportunity to either succeed. So when I walk into a company, I'm not one that's going to pull a quick trigger on, on saying someone can't do a job, I like to give someone the opportunity to actually prove to me that they can do a job that's probably greater than the job they think they can and succeed out of it. You'd be surprised nine out of ten times someone that doesn't think they can do a job can do that job. And 
the ability to drive loyalty and continuity in a business where you give people the opportunity to succeed is just it's off the charts. You can't measure it. So, you know, one of the things we do, you know, we did it at Insight is we set up a you know a core set of values when we first started putting these these companies together, and one of our core core values is to work hard and have fun. And so it's it's very important for my group not just to come to work every day, you know, and kind of slog through the day, but it's also to be challenged, to learn, and have fun. And so, but, you know, long-winded answer to your question, but, yeah, things have evolved, but to a certain extent, um, your successes are built upon, you know, applying core foundational principles, and those are some of the ones I just mentioned. Now, as we opened, I I always try to sum up uh, the particular offering or, or in high-tech firms, the particular software, um, I described it as a, a solution that can help organizations access data insights in real time. That's a very timely sort of buzz phrase that I've been using anyway as I speak to finance leaders. And I, I'm curious, was I – is that a fair <laughs> summation? Or how, what, how would you – how do you describe these offerings? And then I want to ask you, well, what exactly is the type of data it's helping organizations extract? Sure, absolutely. So we're we are a, a global financial reporting, and the the buzzword and acronym is EPM, Enterprise Performance Management Technology Provider. We're actually kind of the leader in that space at this point in time, and we pull data from over 130 different uh, ERP and EPM systems. The primary systems that we integrate with or pull data from are JD Edwards, Oracle, SAP, Microsoft Dynamics. Um, MRI and Viewpoint, just to name a few. Of the 130, um, we have more than 6,000 customers um, and 155,000 users and 130 different customers. We are truly a global company. Um, um, as I mentioned at the top of the at the phone call, we're headquartered in Raleigh, North Carolina, but you know we have um, over 400 employees with open recs for over 50 more employees, and we have offices in you know Seattle, London. Uh, Johannesburg, Dubai, Perth, Sydney, um, and a and a city just out of Amsterdam called Utrecht. Um, so we are truly a global company, um, um, serving a number of large enterprise customers. But you know, our primary our primary use case is that we automate and accelerate finance reporting processes, so that finance teams can spend more you know, less time closing the books and more time collecting and manipulating data and providing more valuable insights into the organization. Um, um, so think of standard, you know, standard close cycles for accounting teams. Generally, you know, they can stretch up to weeks after a month and close. Our tools and solutions allow finance organizations to close their books within days. Um, it's, you know, kind of providing a single source of truth pulling data straight from GL, straight from ERP, so there's less um, less ability to make errors and manual entries in Excel, Excel worksheets. Um, it's the ability for finance teams to be viewed more of a service organization in regards, because that's what we are, providing real-time relevant data to their peers, to business leaders, so they can make real-time decisions. And that's the way the market's trending. That's the, what the market wants, and um, those are why we're providing those tools and solutions. And you know, my department uses one of the tools. We use NetSuite. We're using a, a, a product of ours called Spreadsheet Server, and it allows us to close the books faster and push data out to um, my peers 
and other business leaders in an organization to um, make more informed decisions. It's all about speed and relevancy, and that's what the market wants and demands. And, and you mentioned kind of what's changed over time from, from, you know, I'd say 15 years ago to today. I think 15 years ago you could get away as a CFO from being a, uh, a storyteller of what's happened in the past, um, but now you need to be a predictor of what's going to happen in the future. That's where the value of a CFO comes into play. And unless you have real-time, accurate, relevant data, you're not going to be successful. So the companies that are being acquired, is that, is that about their, cust- their existing customers? Is that about certain technology that complements what in- Insight already has um, been developing? Or what? It's a combination of, yeah, it's a, com- sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah, it's a combination of both. Um, it provides you with the ability to, to provide acceleration in your product roadmap. So if you see certain opportunities in the marketplace that you would take more time to build and you have the opportunity to buy it at a fair price, then why not? Um, does it provide you with the ability to provide a different set of tools to your customers that you don't currently have? Absolutely. Um, um, does it provide you with the ability to drive more scale into the business? Um, you know, that is absolutely one of the you know, key strategic drivers behind our, behind our investments. So it can be one of three important factors. Is it driving innovation? Is it providing scale? Um, um, is it providing more value to our customers, which is one of the primary objectives of any acquisition that we look at? Now, we talked about uh, data insights that are, uh, you know, more or less financial in nature. Are you, are you also, is Insight also incorporating more non-financial metrics into its offerings? Yeah, I think, you know, from a, na- a non-financial metric perspective, you know, when we're looking at our big business, do we look at um, um, net promoter scores? Absolutely. Does that come out of our Solutions, no, but those are some of the non-financial things that we're looking at. Um, you know, financial things, you know, that we do look at are obviously we look at our bookings growth rates. We manage bookings on a weekly basis. We manage our retention rates very closely. Um, you know, we are a, a, you know, why we do focus on top-line revenue growth, extremely important to us. We are focused on, on our EBITDA, on the profitability of the business. Um, you know, one thing that we do manage that some people wouldn't consider a, um, um, a financial metric is we're very, very closely monitoring our employee headcount growth. As you grow and you continue to grow, you can't sustain growth without having, you know, individuals in key roles driving down all the way to driving demand. So we're currently in the market looking for 10 to 15 BDRs, which are you know, individuals that drive demand for our account executives and our account managers to um, drive sales. There's, so there's, from a non-financial perspective, there's a number of ones that we follow, but from our solutions, they are tr- primarily driving financial metrics. Okay. They're pulling numbers from ERPs. So we always like to ask our guests for a finance strategic moment, and this is something that during the course of your finance career, your lines of sight allowed you to identify, whether it be a risk or an opportunity or maybe something else? What, what comes to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, I, I think one that, that, that really helped me move along in my career a little bit more strategically um, and from a leadership perspective is when I was working for 
uh, semiconductor company earlier on in my career, and I was kind of second command in finance. And we would do our weekly our weekly staff meetings, and I told the entire staff. And then, and this meeting, we kind of ended our meeting with with thoughts on ways to improve the profitability of business. If anyone had any thoughts on that, and um, um, someone came up, and we were you know, with standard thoughts, key policies. Um, you know, ways to drive down compensation, way to drive down vendor costs, um, vendor negotiation contracts. But some someone chimed up and said, "Hey, you know, we manufacture our product and our filters in two places. One is in the United States, and one was in San Jose, Costa Rica. And the reason we were in San Jose, Costa Rica, was because we were getting a phenomenal tax benefit. We were operating there on a tax-free uh, holiday for about 10 years. And the person in the meeting, you know." didn't ask the question in the meeting. And so after the meeting, she came up and was kind of sheepish and said, hey, I thought about this. And one of our higher profit margin filters is built and designed in the States, and we ship it from the States, and why wouldn't we potentially push it down the San Jose, Costa Rica? And I, I, I raised that to my superiors, and they were like, you know, the cost of doing that, the, the, the incremental CapEx, blah, 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 just isn't probably going to fly. And so myself and this individual kind of did a side project, and we actually found out that we could get an ROI on the equipment and on the shipping of equipment in less than six months. And so we actually started shipping and distributing these filters from San Jose, Costa Rica versus the U.S., and it was probably a 10 to $15 million improvement in our bottom line profitability over the course of the next 12 months. And kind of what the lesson I learned in there is, number one, is is – always create and foster an environment that people are comfortable asking questions in. And, you know, some people are less apt to listen to your direct reports. They don't have a sincere ear. And that, you know, I think there was a, a great quote, I think, from, from Steve Jobs where he said, you know, why hire a lot of smart people to tell them what to do versus you hire a lot of pe- smart people to have them tell you what to do. And so from that point on in my career, um, I tried to foster an environment, and hopefully I still do foster an environment where my staff, no matter if it's an AP clerk, an AR clerk, have the ability to ask questions and drive change in the organization because just that one question that got asked, you know, very quietly post-meeting, and we ran up the, you know, ran the numbers separately. Um, I made sure she was the one that got the rec- recognition for raising the question and got a check for it. But it was from that point on, from a strategic leader per- perspective, I just thought it was so important to create an environment and foster an environment where people could actually ask questions and be comfortable asking the questions. And so I think if I look back at a magic moment that kind of changed the trajectory of my career and how I managed people and how I brought people into meetings and how I brought people into the organization, my organization, um, that was kind of a defining moment for me. Wow. Great, great, great anecdote. Thank you, uh for sharing that. I also, I, I love that expression, uh, sincere ear. I think it might, might be Shakespearean, but I think it can be kind of rare in business finding that sincere ear. That was, that was, you know, it was a real defining moment for me. And I think, you know, for me, I have used that phrase sincere ear because some people will, you know, they'll listen to you, but they won't act. And so there's a, there's a big difference between someone listening to you and then acting on on what their commentary is because the people that work below you you know they're in the trenches they see things that you don't see and hopefully you are hiring the best and brightest and they should be 
advising you on what to do, not you simply telling them what to do. And I think that that is something that, that really did change the tra trajectory of my career. And it also did, I think, help me become a better leader and a better, you know, just a, a better mentor to a lot of individuals in my department. CFO Craig Nickerson steps into the mentoring round with us after this. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Well, we're going to jump into our mentoring round now where I kick off with this question. What is it that's exciting you now after this long career that you've had about finance and business? I think what excites me most now is that it's, that it's, it's evolving. It's finally evolving. And and it's actually super cool to be working at a company that's products and solutions are geared towards um, improving the financial experience. So I've worked at companies where the software and solution that we were developing was geared towards R&D, marketing, and sales. And so what's exciting me about the career opportunity now is, is that finance is, is something that's starting to be viewed as an extremely, extremely valuable role in the form of a partnership within the firm. And that its ability to grow and evolve is, is just, I think, is just coming to the surface at this point in time. So going back to the, to the early 2000s, when you first stepped into your first CFO role, what is that piece of advice at that moment in time that you wish someone had given you? When you took on the reins of CFO leadership for the first time, everything you thought you had nailed down, but there was this one thing that you wish someone had told you. Anything come to mind? Um, I think when I first took my CF, CFO role, I think it would be to to sincerely attempt to partner successfully with your other peers. I think sometimes when you first start out as a CFO role, that you you kind of can go into a cocoon and you won't focus on your own department, your you know your finance, your accounting, your FP&A function. But my strong recommendation would be to form strong you know partnerships with the CTO, with the CMO, with the CSO, um, with the head of HR. You know, the ability to form strong partnerships with your peers will only make you that much more successful, that much faster. So don't go into the cocoon and focus, focus exclusively on your own department, but focus um, on, on engaging other leaders in the, in the company. It will only grow your, your understanding of the business and your ability to drive and, uh, value throughout the company. Do you have a personal habit or a daily routine that you believe has in some way contributed to your success as a finance leader or finance professional? Um, you know, I think one thing that I do every morning is, is my direct reports and myself start off every day with a 15-minute check-in. So every day 
for 15 minutes we meet in the morning and we talk about what's the priority of the day. Um, we talk about what's top of mind, what um, challenges that we're going to be facing that week. Um, is that between 9 and 10 in the morning or is are we much earlier? 8.30 to 8.45. And, and what time do you get in? <laughs> <laughs> I'm generally in the office between 7:15 and 7:30. Okay. okay. Um, I'm an early riser. I, be, you know, I believe in discipline. I'm kind of a creature of habit. I get up every morning at 5:30 to 6 and work out. And um, um, and I think you know that builds discipline um, throughout your day. I think you know one tool we've we've you know in the last six months we introduced a tool. I'll leave the name out of it. It's a software tool, um, um, whereby Everyone in the department puts in what their top five priorities are for the week, and they literally put it on a software tool, and it's got to be measurable. It's got to be actionable. And the following week, they put in their next five, but they have to go back to the prior five for the prior week, and they literally have to go in the software tool and check whether it was done or not. And it's a green check. And so every week, you know, in addition to meeting with my team 15 minutes every morning, we have a two-hour departmental meeting, and we review what their focus was in this software solution that they committed to doing the prior week, whether they did it, and if they didn't do it, they come up with a reason why they didn't do it, and it rolls forward to the next week. And so that builds discipline and execution. It builds an accountability, not just accountability to to yourself, but, you know, accountability to your team members. And so, you know, that's something that has been very, very helpful here when I started out at, um, uh, at Insight. Had you used that at earlier uh, different companies, or is this? Uh, no, I, I mean at at in Chicago at Savo, um, you know, um, the name of the group is called. You know, we used a. You know, it's kind of one of the most important things that we believe in is organizational health, and organizational health is built around you know trust and engagement, and so in Chicago we met every morning for 15 minutes, and. You know, when your direct reports have access to the CFO every day and they actually truly believe you have an open-door policy and it creates a rhythm and a flow and a cadence that they're comfortable coming and talking with you about everything. You know, it's something that I, I instituted in, in Chicago and I roll forward here, but the software tool I just was speaking about is something that um, um, was just introduced to me at, um, um, at Insight Software. It's a phenomenal tool. Interesting. All right, and... and um so far, uh, the, the feedback from the people using the tool, your team? You know, it's interesting because my feedback initially was negative because I have to do it. I have to do it for my peers. I have to do it for my superiors. And so I thought it was a little bit too heavy-handed from a governance perspective. But now, you know, six months in, you know, I see the value in it. And it really doesn't take that long. If it's taking you more than 15 minutes um, a week to fill out what your focus is and did you complete it from the following week, then you're not using the tool correctly. It really is not meant to be something that is super heavy-handed and takes a lot of time. It's just really a check-in tool that proved to be very, very useful for us. Interesting. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? You know, um, a book that I would recommend, um, one book that I recently read that really um, resonated with me is it was written by the founder of Lululemon. It's called Little Black Stretchy Pants. Um, and it is really a book that takes you from the founding of Lululemon all the way through its public offering and the pitfalls and, and the challenges of raising capital, the thoughts of, of an entrepreneur, a founder entrepreneur, of whether or not you know, 
did he make a mistake in raising capital? Did he make a mistake in taking the company public? All the challenges, you know, all the way down into the finance organization, you know, reporting numbers, reporting numbers accurately, putting in controls and policy and procedures to grow business from where, you know, he basically was schlepping, um, um, you know, yoga pants on the side of a road to where it is today. I think it's, it's a phenomenal book, and it just takes you from from cradle to grave of, of his experience. And I just I, I would recommend it for any finance executive that wants to be a CFO because it just doesn't show you the highlights of, of starting and growing a business and going public. It shows you, you know, the gentleman really is truly insightful. And I think if you look at the book, he has a lot of regrets about what he did with his business. And I think as a CFO, you need to truly understand who your shareholders are, what their ultimate outcome is that they want, and you need to help drive it to that because at the end of the day, you're serving your shareholders and your stakeholders and your CEO. And so I thought it was a really, really cool book from that perspective. Yeah, that's great. We haven't had that one before, so it's even even, even better. Uh, we're up to our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Um, my priorities as a leader here are to, I think, number one, um, generate more credibility with my board and investors. Um, it's to continue to grow out the systems and processes that we are putting in place today. As I mentioned during our conversation, we've recently put five, four businesses together, soon to be five. And those four businesses came together on four different accounting platforms in nine, ten different countries. And so our focus for the next 12 months is to create a foundational experience where we're pushing out timely, accurate, relevant numbers. We're closing the books within three business days. We're pushing out um, dashboards, um, you know, uh, within five business days a month close. We're putting out real-time information on dashboards on a daily basis. So I think my goal for the next 12 months is to – create a foundational experience that everyone believes um, can grow to, to scale to be a company, not just 2, 3x our current size, but 5x our current size. Greg Nickerson, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate your time today. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.